Welcome back to the Ways to Flourish podcast, where we discuss how to flourish through our challenges and elevate voices across William & Mary's campus. I'm Lindsay Heck. And I'm Jenny Helmendaller. And today we're joined by Vincent Shaberry, once again, the president of the Rainbow Coalition, a student-to-be graduate uh, with a BS in psychological sciences and sociology. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Very exciting to see you all again. So last time you were here, you talked about uh, mental health and the experience of queer individuals. So today we're going to talk about the queer medical experience. I know we talked a little bit about that last time, but I definitely think it deserves its own episode. So the overall question here is what makes a queer identifying individual's medical experience different from that of other people? Yeah, I know last time we touched a bit on how like the queer experience on its own is traumatic and different from everyone else's. That definitely carries over when you're trying to get health care. It can be something as simple as just trying to get medication for a common cold and somehow doctors will still bring up the fact that you're queer or trans because it's relevant in some way to your health care. Because of course, if I'm sick, me being trans has to influence the medication I get, even though it works the same with my body and someone else's. It can provide a lot of challenges and frustration, I think, to queer people with having to explain your sexuality or gender identity all the time and that automatically being the first question you get if something's wrong. Yeah, you provided us with a couple of statistics here. Um, from 2017 to 2020, six to eight percent of people have been discriminated against in the healthcare system based on sexual orientation. Also, 29 percent of trans people have had that experience based on a gender identity, and that's from the Center for American Progress. So, when you first enter a doctor's office, what do they say to you that is discriminatory? Yeah. I know for me personally, as a trans person, going into the doctor's office is immediately terrifying because of my name and the gender that they could have on their paperwork. I am very privileged in the fact that I have been able to access a legal name change and a gender marker change, which was a lot of work. But there are still instances where I'll be called up and they will dead name me just in the waiting room and I'll just have to get up and be stared at because my dead name is very feminine and I don't present that way at all. And that could be terrifying and a safety risk in some instances. Um, it also comes into play with trying to access and tell them issues that are going on if they don't know that I'm trans because of these issues. And I'm talking about issues that I could have with my chest or my anatomy, which is still female aligning. I then suddenly have to look into who I'm going to for care just so that I don't put myself in danger because I am trans and the needs of me are different than they're going to be for someone who was AMAB or assigned male at birth who has the anatomy that you would expect them to going into these situations. It's as simple as the anxiety that comes with a name or a gender marker and I personally get a lot of care from Planned Parenthood, which is trans competent and really friendly, but I still have issues there sometimes where they'll see my information and see that I'm there for trans care and just assume that I'm going the other way and that I'm there to talk about feminizing procedures instead of masculinizing procedures, which can be really stressful. And it doesn't extend to just trans people like myself. It comes with sexuality as well. I have friends who will come to get STD tested just to make sure that they're healthy and they'll get six questions just about, well, how does your sexuality work with this? And so you're at a higher risk because of that, just because of discriminatory like 
beliefs that have carried over from times of the past. It is always brought into question, like even if it's not relevant. And I know too, um, like I guess growing up since you're a college student and so you can plan those things and and, um, go yourself, like when you're underage, that's even more of an issue, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I don't have the best relationship with my family. I'm not very connected to them. So accessing care that I needed as a trans person was simply not an option. And going to the doctor and having to present in a way that is not comfortable for me and talk about things that were not aligning with who I was was automatically more stressful. And to, then to try and talk to them to get help for those things in the presence of my parents who were transphobic, near impossible. Um, I didn't have to deal with the sexuality aspect of that because I simply wasn't out and didn't want to add more stress to myself. But I know friends who have had that same kind of issue where sexual history gets brought into question when you're 17 sitting there with your parents and they just have to sit there and they panic because they don't want to come out to their parents in that way. It can be really, really stressful and it's a big source of anxiety for a lot of people. It sounds exhausting. Incredibly. I know it's also not included in a lot of like the medical school work that you have to learn about these things. Like medical school is a very long process. DE&I is not necessarily something that's included. So you can come and be like, I am queer or I am trans. And then you have to explain to the medical provider what that means and what care you need because they simply won't know. It's just like you have to be such a self advocate in such a vulnerable position Mm -hmm. and especially like if you're already used to being a self-advocate with people who are not educated day to day you would think that going to a place of health care you you they would know as a safe space yeah Yeah. but yeah i know there's also a lot of issues with trans medicalization or the belief that you have to like access these health care procedures in order to be like fully trans or trans enough which i don't agree with your trans experience is not based on your access to receive care or your ability to access care. Um, there are so many inequities that come into place with healthcare on its own. That shouldn't be the determining factor for someone's lived experience. But going through this, in order to get the respect of just your peers in your day-to-day life, it's almost pushed or like expected that you get these procedures or HRT or the surgery, which there's like 12 different surgeries that people can get to depending on their own transition needs. And you just go to this medical provider and you have to explain to them what it means to be trans and then try and prove to them that you are trans enough to get the care. It's an incredibly flawed system that is meant to oppress, essentially. And so many people just don't realize how flawed it is. I think a lot of people believe that discrimination is not rampant. Um, but, uh, the affordable care act, the ACA did try to prevent discrimination in healthcare providers for, um, queer individuals, but could you describe a little bit what's happened since that was first implemented? Absolutely. So the original, um, affordable care act implemented by the Obama administration did have a clause that specifically stated that you could not discriminate against someone based on their sex, their ethnicity, their race, all of the little, boxes that we can put on those forms um, to make healthcare more accessible and equitable for people. As soon as the administration ended and it passed over to the new administration, 
uh, there was an attack against that where they tried to exclude gender identity specifically from that um, so that healthcare providers would not have to provide care based on someone's gender identity needs. Um, luckily, with the Biden administration currently, there has been a push to reverse the change that had happened, but it's still not perfect. Um, you can say that someone shouldn't discriminate and that it's illegal, but it doesn't mean that doesn't happen. Just because you say that it's bad doesn't mean that people are going to listen. I think especially with the politicalization of queerness and transness, there is a large argument about what it means to like care and be human. And trans people and queer people are being put in question because people don't think we deserve rights. So despite the positive things that are happening and the intent of the Affordable Care Act, it's not making the necessary changes we need in order for healthcare to actually be accessible. It hasn't made the change, but it has the right idea. And you had mentioned previously that Planned Parenthood is a, a care provider that for the most part you feel comfortable engaging with. Are there other local or nationally identified hospitals or systems that that seem to be an advocate or a safe space for the LGBTQ plus community to go to and, and know that you are going to be receiving that care that you deserve? Off the top of my head, I cannot think of a single national organization that does so. I do know that there are a lot of like small local organizations who do specialized care, but they have their limitations because of how specialized it is. So I do have a list of specifically for Virginia care for trans and queer people that I can share with you guys, though. Yeah, and I think we did post something after your last visit on in the resources section on the uh, William & Mary Wellness website, too. That's accessible to everyone. Yeah. So when we're talking about getting support, how do you think we can increase equity for LGBTQ plus identifying individuals in our healthcare system on, I guess, on a national level, but also just where we are now. I think it all comes down to education and listening. If we can't have a conversation about it, there's not going to be change, especially when there's such pushback and like misunderstanding about these identities and what it means to be a trans or a queer person. Um, if you don't even know what the issues are or haven't talked to someone, then there's not going to be a change so that things get better. I would not put it on the shoulders of every queer and trans person you know to educate you on every single misstep that happens in healthcare and with mental health and physical health. But there should be some system so that medical providers can learn and better support the people that they are supporting. It shouldn't be so cis and heteronormative that it's automatically exclusionary to queer and trans people who need care. And the healthcare system itself is just so complex. It, it could take a really long time to try and figure that out. So adding different layers, like I, I know it, like it can be difficult or daunting, but definitely, as you said, like putting the responsibility on your queer identifying friends to educate you is not going to be very uh, conscientious. Yeah. And also like one queer person does not represent the experience right. of everyone. Like I'm talking a lot on my experiences, on the experiences of my friends, but that is not at all representative of what it is for every queer and trans person. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different things that come into play. I know I can't speak on what it means to be black and queer or black and trans or other things like that. Those experiences are also difficult and in other ways than it would be for me. Mm -hmm. 
because there are additional challenges that come with those intersectionalities. Yeah, besides those intersectionalities of um, differing identities, what other kind of factors do you think can make it more difficult for a queer identifying individual in the healthcare system? I think access to insurance on its own could be something that's difficult. I am someone who I still have insurance, but there was a good period of time where I couldn't use it because my legal name and the name on my insurance did not match. Mm. The name on my prescriptions and the name on my insurance didn't match for a while. So then with that, as a poor college student who's low income and is supporting myself through school, I had to find a way to access my medication without the help of insurance, which already, because it was HRT or hormone replacement therapy, which is a trans, like, trans healthcare, was not covered by my insurance very well. It got me like $5 off maybe that they would cover, but everything else had to come out of pocket and then it became completely out of pocket. And as my prescription increased, I then suddenly had to find more funds and there was simply nothing I could do about that until the health insurance company decided, well, I guess you're trans enough now that we can process your name change. Wow. So Vincent, how, how in your opinion, how can we improve uh, healthcare at William & Mary? I still think it comes down to like education. I know that in my friend's experiences, I haven't used a lot of the healthcare provided specifically by the wellness center because I know that it's not very accessible to trans people from all of the stories I've heard from my peers. If there's not discussion about the needs and the access that is necessary for queer and trans people, then there's not going to be improvement. So listening to what struggles people have had and making sure that the healthcare providers here are educated on those issues so that we don't come into this space needing help and wanting assistance just to have to educate the people who are supposed to be helping us and telling us what's wrong on our needs. We can't know everything. Right. Has the Rainbow Coalition um, tried to initiate a conversation with the health center or any of the wellness care providers to work towards basically clarifying your needs and, and what's what's best for the community? I think in the past we've at least worked with like queer sex ed and working on mm-hmm. the issues that come with sexuality. Um, in terms of transness, I'm not really sure. I do know that we do work with to day-to-day life and also healthcare procedures and therapy and all of those things that are affected by gender identity. But in terms of care, we've essentially asked for someone who's like us or someone who aligns with the queer community to be a support system. There's not a lot we can do in terms of that because the hiring process is out of our reach, essentially. Right. Do you have any specific ideas for things you want to implement with the health center or recommendations? Um, Because the hiring process is out of our reach, essentially. Right. Do you have any specific ideas for things you want to implement with the health center or recommendations? Um, Off the top of my head, I think just like having that representation is important and that is one step in the right direction but also asking 10 like queer students what what will make this better and how do we fix our broken system is a lot to put on them. That's all, yeah. So half of the time, like figuring out gender identity and who you are on its own is really hard. And college is a lot of times the first time that people get to like truly explore who they are and their needs. So putting 
how do we fix the system and better support you on them while they're also trying to figure out who am I as a person, how do I align with my gender, what's my sexuality is really overwhelming and a lot. But having that space where someone is there to help them sort through that from a perspective of understanding and being a part of that community instead of being an outsider makes all the difference. The energy that goes into that self-exploration and navigating that landscape. I mean, and then to be like, well, are you ready to go figure out some policy changes too? I mean, that's, yeah, that's a big ask. Um, but I hope with, you know, continued conversations and developed understandings, that's a direction that we can move into. Right. I think yeah. it's important that we identify those gaps and then, able to work towards correcting them. Um, and the support groups that you mentioned earlier um, that are in collaboration with the health center, how do folks connect with those? Um, we talk about them through the Rainbow Coalition mm -hmm. listserv, and we do have group chats specifically for um, QTPOC or queer trans people of color, trans and GNC students and intersex students, where we'll sign reminders every week about where to go and who will be going the kind of things that we'll be doing. So if they reach out to me or the Rainbow Coalition, they can be put in contact with that. Group. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and we were talking last time too, just about how the community here is flourishing and it, it's very much active and alive. Um, you are leading the charge on William & Mary Pride Week, which is happening next week. Could you tell us some more about that? Absolutely. So Pride happens every year. It used to be a one-day celebration. Um, with COVID, we were unfortunately very low scale kind of pride for two years um, with one pride not happening in 2020 and then it almost completely virtual pride last year. Um, so to celebrate us being on campus, we are doing eight whole days of events with at least one event every day um, where queer and queer trans and allies can come to support and just celebrate diversity and community on campus. So I know we have a lot of events lined up from April 10th to April 17th, including a drag show performance with local drag queens from Richmond, um, a queer professionals panel highlighting some of the queer staff and faculty on this campus, um, and maybe a few from off campus and community members. Um, a lovely opening speaker who is a, an alum from the school, Sean McNulty, who works in um, therapy and mental health, is gonna be speaking with us we have queer prom, which is always a good time. And then a Pride Fest celebration on our last day on the Sunken Gardens, where we will have student performers from other cultural organizations to really highlight that the queer community is important and we love to support each other, but we're not the only um, source of diversity on this campus. There are so many diverse and interesting people on this campus and we really wanted to highlight that through our last day. So it's going to be a lot of fun. There will be a lot of informa information on the Rainbow Coalition Instagram. I definitely recommend checking it out. That's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome that it's able to be in person again. Yes. That's all eight scary. events. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's really exciting that all of these events are happening with Pride. And, and I know that it feels that activism on campus has been really active recently and really flourishing. So is there anything that you've been particularly excited about recently? Um, yes, actually. So for the past, since I've been here, I guess, so year and a half, I have been working with the admin of the school to try and improve um, quality of life for trans people on campus. Um, we're starting to get headway with the gender inclusive housing um, by ResLife, which is flawed, but they're working on it. 
Um, but I think the most exciting update we have is about tribe card policies. Um, you might have seen it in some of your student emails, but there is an update to where trans students who do not have access to a legal name change can get their preferred name on their tribe cards now, which is a massive success and a really good source of relief for students, I think, so that okay. you don't have to be dead named every time you swipe your card to get food or into your dorm or wherever you have to use it as like an ID um, for school functions. So students who are interested in participating and getting their preferred or chosen name on their tribe card can do that free of charge um, by reaching out to Rainbow Coalition and me essentially, and I can send them the form so that they can get their updated tribe card. But yeah. that is a permanent change now to where students don't have to have that legal name change That's great. in order to get their actual name on their card, which is very exciting. That's wonderful. And to be clear, the best way to contact Rainbow Coalition, that's mm -hmm. where you're housed on TribeLink? Yes. Mm -hmm. Vincent, I want you to know that you're always welcome in these spaces in the, the queer community of William & Mary. And I know that we have probably a good bit of growth and, and work to do, but I think it's important that we say things like that out loud. Thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our sponsor, United Healthcare, for support of this podcast. Ways to Flourish is produced by Lindsay Heck, Ben Heath, Daria Moody, Calder Sprinkle, and myself, Jenny Helmendaller. <laughs>